Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. Welcome everybody. Good afternoon. It is Thursday afternoon, Fresh Thinking time, and I do know that some of you were waiting last week. To, what, what's going on? What happened? Where's Fresh Thinking? Well, last week was the the High FM Radio Fun. It was very nice that a whole lot of you came over to say hello, which was really nice. And it was also nice that a whole lot of you used our platform over that hour or so when I sat on air with Alec Hogg. And you actually donated Dafka specifically during our session. So I really, really appreciate that. Now we're back to so-called normal. Is there such a thing anymore? Is there such a thing as normal? I don't know. But it is a regular Thursday afternoon, which means that it is time for fresh thinking in the ordinary way. And that means nothing is ordinary, because that's exactly what we do over here. We try and think about things out of the box, different perspective. And I I was toying with different ideas of what it is that we should speak about today. And I do hope that it will be a conversation, not just a monologue. And just shortly before the show... I was chatting to my son, and he actually had a very interesting observation. And I thought, you know what, that's that's actually a great topic. And before I share the nature of our conversation and the topic that we're going to discuss, let me first give you the information that you need, because you do need to be able to get in touch, right? So the way you do that is either on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Chai FM, or mine. Otherwise, you can send SMSs on 34519 and you can send Telegram messages on 0618951019. So, let me first tell you an incident that happened yesterday which really got me thinking and it wasn't necessarily what got me thinking about a topic that we would discuss today on the radio until this conversation that I had with my son a little bit earlier today and it might be one of those things where it's very easy for us to sidestep and say, ah, it doesn't affect me. Not an issue in my life, it's those people. And I think that's the problem. Once we start to say those people, usually we avoid responsibility. So here's the story that happened yesterday. And I'm sure it's the kind of story that will probably upset you, uh, rile you up. It's one of those stories. So yesterday morning, I'm on the way to school, taking my kids to school. And the morning run is always a lot of fun. Weaving your way through traffic and people with their differing degrees of frustration and misbehavior and people cutting into lanes and driving where they shouldn't. It's always interesting and colorful getting to school in the mornings. And we're driving as we do down Grayston Drive and the oncoming traffic in the oncoming traffic far left lane, which really should not interfere much with traffic. It was a minor accident. So minor accident means no fire trucks, no ambulances. It means that there was a tow truck and there were metro police who were dealing with the accident. It really was not a big issue. But all you need is a small upset like that in the morning traffic to create absolute mayhem. And so the traffic starts to back up and back up and back up and back up with a direct effect on us because we needed to turn from Grace and Drive onto the Mike One Highway. But now you can't do that because you've got a whole lot of people on the on-ramp, sorry, on the off-ramp coming from the highway onto Grayson. And of course, God forbid anybody should realize that if it's going to turn red, you should probably stay in your lane and not block up the whole intersection for somebody else. So it is now complete gridlock. And I thought, oy vey, okay, get the kids to school eventually. Now I'm debating on the way back if I'm going to go the same route or not because 
this kind of gridlock could take a long time to clear. Driving back down, and by this time, the Metro Police had now deployed right throughout all of the intersections, and they were doing a fine job of helping people along. But we know how it is in this country of ours. Some drivers are more impatient than others. So, And this is the part of the story that I really got me thinking. So I'm coming down the one direction, and there are people coming onto Grayson Drive from the highway off-ramp, and some of them are impatient because the the backup of traffic is quite bad. So what do they do? They drive up the lane that is supposed to turn away from Santon into Weinberg, and they cut them from that lane in front of all the other people who've been waiting patiently in line. And standing right there is a Metro police officer waiting for exactly that, so that if somebody tries to break the law in order to get into the lane that is most convenient for them, They'll just direct them. And I don't know about you, but if I was that person, so let's say that I decided I'm really impatient or I've got an extremely important meeting, and so I'm going to take the chance of driving up the wrong lane and then turning in front of everybody, and boom, there's a cop. I don't know. What would you do? If I was in that situation, I would turn and drive the other way, right? Okay, listen, he directs you now. You're in the left lane. You've got to turn left. Sorry for you. It's unfortunate that you thought you were going to shortcuts. It's actually going to cost you now in time. Sorry, you've got to turn left. And this is what happens. And I see this um, this cop standing there and doing a great job of forcing people to pay the consequences of their poor decisions. And one driver arrives and the cop directs the driver and the driver ignores the cop. And then he starts pointing and the, the, the guy ignores the cop. And eventually he just drives around the traffic cop. And continues on his merry way. So now he's flaunted the law and he's obstructed, what do they call it? Obstructed the ends of justice, whatever it is that he's done. He's ignored an officer of the law. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Where does this come from? Where does this attitude come from? This attitude that people believe that the, the law is a great thing except when it doesn't suit me. Where does it come from that people believe that it's acceptable to do a whole range of things? So it might be as innocuous as traveling in the yellow lane because you're, in your opinion, more (laughs) pressed to get to work than the next guy? Or is it the person who skips the red light because, hey, it's Joe Big, everybody does that? Or the person who, when they do get caught, decides that they're going to give Coke and chips to the traffic cop in the hope that that will get them off a fine? Or the person who says, hey, you know what, everybody else is forging documents, so maybe I'll also forge a document. Or the person who then starts to embezzle their company. You know, it's a sliding, a slippery slope, these small departures from honesty and integrity. So it got me thinking, you know, where does that originate and how do you stop it? And, and can you be sure, can you be sure that in your own family, the value set that we should have as Jewish people as humans generally, values of integrity, of honesty, of obedience to the law, how do we ensure that that actually sticks, that that actually becomes part of our family value set? Because it was very easy for me to sit there and be critical and say, ah, look at that, typical. Okay, so I will acknowledge it was a taxi driver who went around the traffic cop. So the easiest response is to say, you see those taxi drivers, that's how they are. They don't respect the law. And they have, they're a law unto themselves, all the, all the wonderful expressions that people use. And that was, admittedly, my initial impulsive reaction. But then I thought about it often. I was actually on the way from there to give a class. And in the class, I said, you know, hang on a second. First of all, it's very comfortable 
to say there are other people who break the law. The question is, is that an honest assessment, first of all? Meaning to say, can we all claim without any question that we're squeaky clean when it comes to our own morality? And that's a big part of the question, which leads me to the main question that I thought we could talk about today, which is how do you ensure that your family, particularly if you're a parent, how can you ensure that your family, that your children, your grandchildren, if you're a teacher, your students, if you're a religious leader, your community, how can you ensure that in a world today where much of morality and values is relative to many people, how do you ensure that you actually keep integrity? How do you ensure that you bring up kids who know that it's out of the question, that you just don't do certain things because they're simply dishonest? So I would love to hear your thoughts or input on that. As I said before, you can send a message on Telegram 0618951019 or SMS 34519. Or use social media, either Twitter or Facebook, myself or High FM. Let us know. What's your secret? This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. I think you'll agree that if you want to ingrain integrity into kids, you first of all have to be consistent. I think that would be fair to say, right? You have to be consistent. And the second thing is you have to be willing to take the knocks. <laughs> because if you're going to teach integrity, which we should, because we all believe in integrity, right? We all believe in honesty. We all believe that we would like to have children who grow up to be honest members of society. If you want to guarantee that, you have to be willing to take certain knocks, like not cutting ahead in the queue, uh, saying, oh, please, I have to because, and then give some kind of a lame excuse. And then expect that your child is going to say, yes, we absolutely value honesty. <laughs> because children are incredibly, incredibly perceptive. So the conversation I had earlier today with my son was, if you look at the Torah portion this week, and the minute you start to think along these lines, you'll recognize that it's not just the Torah portion this week. It's actually a theme that keeps repeating itself again and again and again in all of the stories that the Torah tells us of early Jewish history. But let's start with the Torah portion this week. So the Torah portion this week is the story of Jacob and his family. It's a fascinating story in its own right, and quite honestly, I think it deserves a whole show because Jacob's story is the story of going into difficult circumstances and emerging from them enriched and empowered, which I think is valuable for us, especially now having gone through the COVID experience or still going through the COVID experience. You know, these things sometimes break a person. But there's also the, uh, the possibility, the potential that it's what grows a person. Subject for another conversation. In this week's portion, you've got the development of Jacob's family. So he lands up marrying a total of four wives, which was quite common in those days. And from the four wives, by the end of this week's Torah portion, he has 11 sons. And there is some degree of competition between the different segments of the family because Jacob has, he definitely has a, a, Certain, um, he, he prefers in a sense that so that's a harsh word to use, but he definitely prioritizes his one wife, Rachel, over the others, and I suppose by extension, her son, Joseph. And there's this moment in the story where his firstborn son, Ruvain, the firstborn son, is out in the field and he finds some flowers, um, jasmine flowers, according to the Arabic that Rashi, the commentator, quotes. And he brings these 
Some people call them mandrakes. So different views of exactly what flower it was. He brings these flowers and he wants to give it as a gift to his mom. So his, his mother is Leia. He wants to give her this gift of these flowers. And it becomes a whole contentious issue because Rachel Rochel comes along and she sees that there's these beautiful flowers. She says, do me a favor. Can I have the flowers? And it, it, there's a whole story that developed from that. I'm not going to get into that story because it's not relevant to our conversation right now. What is relevant is that the Torah is not a storybook. So whenever the Torah relates stories to us, it's only because they have lesson value. So you read the story, you hear the story, it will teach you something about how you should become a better Jew, how you should become a better person, how you should become more aligned with what God wants. That means that if there are details in a story, those details too are part of the relevance and the lesson of the story. Again, it's not a book of history because if it was a book of history, the Torah does a pretty poor job. When you consider that, for example, the first one and a half thousand years of, of history, of world history, are glossed over in a matter of a few short paragraphs, but then four entire books are dedicated to the Jews going around in circles for 40 years in the desert. So it's clearly not a, a regular history book. What is it? It's a book of lessons. So when you hear a story, you've got to analyze the story and say, okay, so what does it mean to me? How is it talking to me? And then when there are details within the story, you have to ask yourself about those details and say, how do those details specifically relate to this? Here's the story. The Torah doesn't just simply tell us that he went out, that Ruvain went out and he got these flowers. But it specifically tells us that he went out at the time of the wheat harvest. And that's when he got the flowers. And Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, immediately picks up from this that you have to realize the Torah wants us to know that the flowers that Ruvain got were ownerless. It was a time of wild flower season. And, and, and nobody could lay claim to these particular flowers. And so that teaches us but here's this youngster. We don't know exactly how old Ruvain was at the time. You can assume that he's, what, maybe 10 years old or something like that, perhaps a little bit younger, probably younger. And he goes out into the field and he brings these flowers and he makes sure that the flowers don't belong to anybody. Now, anybody who's a parent will know that children do not naturally know those things. Children don't naturally know that you can't take something that's not yours. Think of all the times that you fight when you go visit somebody in their home and you have a young child and the young child wants to play with a particular toy and it becomes a whole fight. You have to explain to the child it's not your toy. It's not yours. It's not natural for a child. It's not something the child automatically knows. You have to explain it. So here you've got a child who knows that you don't take flowers in a field unless you can ascertain that the flowers don't belong to anybody, that the field doesn't belong to anybody. That's healthy education. That means that there, there are values that have been communicated to that child that are good values, that are the values of integrity and honesty. Now, what's fascinating about this story is we're talking about Jacob. Here. Jacob's experiences in life don't always appear to be absolute honesty. For example, he disguises himself as his brother in order to receive blessings from his father that the father actually intended to give to the brother. That doesn't sound like absolute integrity. And in this Torah portion as well, when he's got the, you know, he's worked for his father-in-law for all of these years and he hasn't been paid. So eventually they strike a deal that effectively Jacob will get all of the, the, uh, uh, how should we say, the unusual flock. So there's normal flock, and anything that's born with some kind of aberration, 
that's what he's going to get. And it becomes this intriguing experience where Jacob effectively, it must have been the earliest example of genetic engineering, so using a bit of spiritual ingredient as well, but he successfully breeds these strange animals that have these unusual blotches and spots. Also, it doesn't sound exactly 100% uh, like the example of integrity. And yet, you see his child from the youngest age knows absolutely, without a question, you don't take something that is not yours. So those stories of Jacob playing games to get the blessings or to get the salary, actually, if you analyze them, in both cases, he was getting what was his. He was dealing with criminal elements on the other side. His brother was far, far from a person of integrity. And his father-in-law was certainly not a man of integrity. So in order to balance and to be able to get what was his, he had to play a game that was a game of deception. But at the same time, he was able to convey such a clear message to his young child that you don't touch something that doesn't belong to you. So if something does belong to you, you may have to employ interesting tactics in order to get it from the person who has taken it unlawfully. But if something is not yours, well, then there's nothing to discuss. You just simply, simply can't touch it. And there's a bit of history over here. It's not something which is unique to Jacob. In fact, if you look, as I said earlier, go back through many of the early stories or the stories of early Jewish history, this theme does repeat itself many, many times. The theme of not everybody around you has integrity and that's not an excuse. The fact that you live in an environment where people break the law is not an excuse. The fact that you live in an environment where people disdain people who have moral values not an excuse. And that's quite relevant to us. It's something which we really have to think about because very often we say, well, nobody else is keeping the law. Why should I? Something really to think about. I'd love to hear your thoughts, input on that. If you've got something to share, you could use the telegram line on 0618951019 or the SMS line on 34519 or just simply social media. It always seems to work. Twitter, Facebook, you can find me at Rabashish. Find find Chai FM, not Facebook. Facebook, you're not going to find Facebook on Facebook, right? Find Chai FM on Facebook. Let us know what you think. How does a person ensure that when you're living in a world that seems to have lost its moral compass, that you are a family and you have children who believe in and live with absolute integrity? So if you've just joined in, you're... You know, you're coming in the middle of a conversation, so I hope you'll weigh in on the conversation. It's Rabbi Shishlo. We're together until the top of the hour. This is Fresh Thinking Today. The issue at hand is, how do you ensure that you bring up children with integrity if you live in a society that seems to have lost it? It's a good question, I think at least. It's a valuable question because it's something that we deal with on a daily basis. Sometimes you get the rolling eyes. Do you ever get that? Ever get the rolling eyes? from kids because they're oh you're such a prude you're so backward yeah can't you just do everybody else is doing it not so simple right because when it comes to integrity it's not that simple you can't just some days do it right and other days not do it right and then expect that your kids are going to pick up on it so if you go back to those early stories in the Torah which of course are the stories of early Jewish history you'll find that this is a a theme that recurs. For example, the one moment where it becomes a, a watershed moment, and, and it's fascinating. I said earlier that it's a slippery slope, and it really is, because everybody thinks that 
I know how to manage just how much lack of integrity I can do before things spiral out of control. And really not that way. It's really not that way. We think that we have that level of control, but we don't. It's a very unfortunate reality that people are not good at having insight into their own reality. So here's a story. You've got Abraham, Abraham and his nephew Lot. Early on in Jewish history, very early on in Jewish history, and they're both successful people and they have a, a, a large flock of, of animals. And there's a conflict that erupts between the shepherds working for Abraham and the shepherds working for Lot. And what was the, what was the difference? What was their issue, you know, that they disagreed on? The Lot shepherds believed that the whole land of Israel had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. And at that point, Lot was the only biological next generation. So in his mind, no question about it. The land is ours. We are free to have our animals graze anywhere. Abraham says the promise was made, but the land wasn't yet handed over. So it's all theoretical at this stage. The land is not ours. You dare not touch something that's not yours. So his shepherds were trained to muzzle the animals. And the only time that they could graze was when they were in their own field. So sounds like a fairly decent argument on Lot's part. Hey, the land is ours. God has said the land is ours. God doesn't mess around. It's not like anybody else who may make a promise and then not deliver on the promise. God has given us the land. It's as good as ours. So go ahead and enjoy. Navram says, no, because there's a big difference between when something exists in potential and when something exists in real life. So just in the same way as could you imagine using this logic, going into a shop and saying, look, I could be a customer in this shop. And in fact, not only could I be a customer in the shop, but they promised me I won some kind of a, a competition or whatever. They promised me I'm going to get this particular appliance. I'm going to walk into the shop and just take the appliance and walk out. So... That's not how it works, right? There's due process. And even if you have won an appliance, they're going to give it to you. You're not going to take it. So Lot sounds like he has this really compelling argument and he feels like he's not really a dishonest person because he believes that he has reason to support his argument. Look what happens next. Abraham says to Lot, he says, okay, we have two different interpretations of integrity. As far as I'm concerned, what you're doing is completely dishonest and I will have no part of it. So here's the deal. You choose where you want to live, whichever direction you go with your crowd, with your flocks, with your shepherds, I will go in the opposite direction. Then you want to have my, me as your guilt conscience, and I don't want to be around somebody who's behaving in a way that's less than, than honest. So Lot says, fine, he looks around, does a bit of uh, research. Like any classical person who is looking to emigrate, he is absolutely convinced that the grass is greener in the region called Sodom, and it was. In fact, the Torah tells us that it was a very fertile valley and it was a great place to live. And people were do, doing really well over there financially. And so Lot says that's where he wants to go. Kuloi Mashke. It's a place that is very fertile. That's where I want to live. And off he goes. You know what happens? Sodom turns out to be one of the most immoral places on earth. So bad that when Lot arrives, they look at him and say, whoa, who's this guy? He has so much integrity. <laughs> now, look at this as, a, as relative integrity. When Lot is in the company of Abraham, he, he's treated like he's some kind of a criminal because he just doesn't have this absolute honesty. 
when he arrives in Sodom, they appoint him as one of the elders of the city because they think, wow, you know, he has a guy who has uh, a value system that we haven't yet seen before. Now, Sodom was a horrible place. It was a place where they punished people for being kind to each other. It was a place that if you had guests in your house, it was a penal, you know, it was possibly a criminal incident in their society. But what's interesting about the story is Lot starts his journey by believing that he's not dishonest. And before he knows it, he's become part of the fabric of a society that is absolutely dishonest. And that's quite a sobering thought because that means if we want as people, if we want to have integrity, if we want to raise children who have integrity, we have to be honest about how fine a line it is between things that everybody does that are not so kosher and then things that are outright criminal. I was talking quite a while ago, I was talking to a business person, quite a successful business person. And he made an observation. I thought it was a very good observation. He said, you know, no person ever plans to be a criminal. It's a good point, right? Nobody plans. Nobody gets up at some point in their life. You ask the kids at school, you know, what would you like to be? Fireman. What would you like to be? A policeman. What would you like to be? A, a criminal. It, it doesn't work that way. People don't choose to become criminal. But as the Talmud says, Talmud says that the nature of the inclination towards evil that every single one of us has is Hayoim Oimerloi Asekach. The nature of the Yetzirah, as we call it, the evil inclination. Today it tells you do X. X is very superficial, very innocuous. And then the following day it says, you liked my idea yesterday, right? Okay, let's try something else. Let's push the envelope a little bit. Until eventually you reach a point where it's got you completely off the rails to the extent that you've denied God's existence. So it's the same concept. Nobody plans to embezzle their company. Yeah, take a little bit here. Nobody notices. I'm going to take a little bit more. So this question of integrity is quite an important question. And it's quite sobering to look at the story of Lot because you start in one place, you land up somewhere completely different, and you didn't even see it happening. You've got some tips or insights on how a person can teach integrity to themselves and, of course, by extension, their family. Please share it with us, 34519, otherwise on Telegram, 0618951019. And, of course, there are always the social media channels open to you, Facebook and Twitter. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. It is Fresh Thinking indeed. Somebody's just sent through a quote uh, where did I put it? A second ago, quote from Gandhi said, to believe in something and not to live it is dishonest. See, that's the thing. If we want to convey integrity, you can only convey integrity with integrity. <laughs> Meaning to say, you can't tell somebody, be honest. You have to illustrate how to be honest. That's to any person, particularly to children. And once you recognize that a small bit of dishonesty on a parent's part could translate into license for all kinds of dishonesty on a child's part, you realize it's, a, it's quite a weighty, it's quite a weighty responsibility. You know, our patriarchs, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, we're told are divided into essentially three channels. So Abraham represents what's called the right channel, the right channel, not as in right and wrong, as in right and left. So, Abraham represents the right channel, which is the channel of tolerance, 
benevolence, generosity, love, goodness. And if you look at his story, that is exactly the kind of person that Abraham was and the way he went about his business, which was very much about inclusion and about reaching out to people, touching people, inspiring people, and so on and so forth. The issue with that is that when you're so tolerant, and I'm not saying Abraham, of course, had it right. He had a very healthy sense of love and tolerance. But as a student of Abraham, unfortunately, there are some people who believe very strongly that they want to be a student of Abraham, which means that they want to have this very open, warm, fuzzy kind of relationship with everything, including honesty. That's that's the Achilles heel of being so kind, nice, and and include, inclusive of, of everybody else. Is that, okay, so who says you have to have integrity? Whatever, as long as everybody's part of the party, you know, as long as everybody is loved, that surely is what counts. His son Yitzchak was the left channel. The left channel is the exact opposite. It's what we call Gevura. That's the channel of discipline, focus, high ideals, a sense of fear of doing what's wrong, a very curated, disciplined kind of personality, which also has an expectation of you need to have very high levels of everything. So if you want to be part of this circle, you have to have a high level of commitment and you have to be willing to do things that might even come at a sacrifice and you have to be very learned and you have to be very demanding on yourself, etc., etc., etc. Yaakov, who is the Jacob, the, full, the forefather that we read about in the Torah portions at the moment, he's considered the middle channel. The middle channel means the channel of balance, the channel of harmony, as they call him, the Berea Hatichoin. If anybody's familiar with the structure of how the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle in the desert was constructed. So it was made out of panels, and those panels had to be connected with poles, berichim, these kind of bolts that ran through them. So the briach hatichon was the middle bolt that had to run right through the entire structure to give it structural integrity. And that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about integrity. Integrity is no different in a human being to what it is in a building. If you build a building, I remember when we built our shul, so we thought it would be, a, I thought, say we, I thought it would be a fairly straightforward thing. You sink foundations and you build a building. How difficult can that be? But thank God Hashem has a great sense of humor. And as we started to dig the foundation, we discovered that half of the property was sitting on rock. And in order to sink a foundation, we'd actually have to blast the rock. And half of the, of the property was sitting on unstable soil. So in order to lay a foundation, we actually had to create a, a foundation for the foundation. So it became a very complicated business of building a building. But you need to have structural integrity because if we hadn't done this, one side of the building may have started to sink because the, the softer ground over there. And if it starts to sink, of course, anybody knows this. I'm sure it's happened to you in, in at least either a building you own or a building you visited. You start to get cracks as you because you don't have structural integrity. Now, it's exactly the same as it is in a building, is the same as it is in a person. So Yaakov is the individual who represents absolute integrity. And the thing about integrity is that integrity has to be in place right across, from start to finish. You have to have integrity in all situations, in all circumstances. Again, it is a, a big question mark in Yaakov's story because he is the person who disguised himself to get the blessings. But again, they were his blessings and they belonged to him. He deserved those blessings, and the system was working against him. He didn't break a law, but he did use an element of, I would definitely not say the word dishonesty, because there was nothing dishonest about it. In fact, if you read carefully the interaction between himself and his father, he pretty much told his father who he was. 
Arabs, which raises the question of why he disguised himself. But that's subject for another conversation. Essentially, it boils down to one point, which is that whatever it is that Yitzchak, his father, saw in Esav, his wild brother, Yaakov was able to illustrate, you know what, I could actually do that too. That's why I'm the one who deserves the blessings. Okay, big topic, and it's a fascinating topic. Now, the point is that it's integrity in all situations. And this is where you see, this is what you see about Yaakov as his greatness. Abraham and Yitzchak, the first two of the patriarchs, they lived in Israel. Ever since God told Abraham, Lech Lecha, leave your family behind, leave everything that's familiar, go to the promised land. From there on, except for a short stint where there was a famine and he had to leave, he was in a holy environment. He was in Israel. And in that holy environment, it's easy to have integrity. People often say, you know, if I lived in a, in a place, if I lived in a place where everybody kept Shabbos, it would be easy to keep Shabbos. You're right, it would be easy to keep Shabbos. And if I, lived in a, if I lived in a place where everybody obeyed the law, then I would obey the law. That's what happens, right? South Africans go to Australia, everybody obeys the law. Okay, I'll obey the law too. That's not a chap. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to be part of a herd mentality where the herd mentality happens to be the right thing. That doesn't tell me that you have integrity. That tells me that you're swept in a wave of people who conform to a certain behavior. So if you've got an Abraham or a Yitzchak and they live in a place like Israel, which is, it's designed for this. It's wired for spirituality. It's a place of closeness to the divine. So you're telling me you're in that space and you have integrity, not only integrity of your moral behavior, but integrity of your beliefs. Okay, I'm not really surprised. That's exactly what I would expect of somebody who is a holy person in a holy environment. Now think about this in your own experience. Who has ever stood in shul on Yom Kippur and felt somewhat angelic? Happens, right? Get swept up in the emotion, get swept up in the tunes. You're, there's so many people around, it's a holy day, you're fasting, you're focused. The environment is so powerful that it envelops you completely to the point that you actually can't even imagine what it's like to be outside of that environment and what it might be like to have to confront demons, so to speak. It's not a big deal to do what's right in an environment where everything is right. Yaakov is the one who has to leave home. He's the only one of the patriarchs who has to bring up his children in a place that is not Israel, it's not holy, it's not connected. He's surrounded by crooks. People are out to get him. It's very difficult to convey the right values to his kids. And he does it. How do we know he does it? Just look at the story. His young son goes picking flowers. And it's absolutely clear to him without a question that he'll only pick flowers that are wild and available to everybody. Somehow, Yaakov has success in sharing that integrity with his children. And... If we could just take a little bit of a leaf out of his book, it would help us a lot to be able to share integrity with our own children. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So picture the scene. Picture the scene. Here you are. You've got this great legacy of a father who's a deeply, deeply spiritual person, a grandfather who's a deeply spiritual person, holy individuals. And you look at them and say, wow, you know, it's a hard act to follow, right? Hard act to follow on the one hand. On the other hand, what a brilliant example of how to behave. And now you, this is Yaakov's story, 
you're forced out of that comfortable environment. You're forced away from those great role models. I'm absolutely sure that if we would have interviewed Yaakov on this station, if that had been something that you could do uh, 4,000 years ago, he would have said one of the hardest things about living so far is that my children did not get to see their grandparents who represented all those lofty values. Instead, they had the grandparents who were there in Haran who were trying to cheat us out. The grandfather who gave the wrong girl to to his nephew as a wife. The grandfather who made his nephew slash son-in-law work for years on end and didn't even want to pay him. And eventually when it was time to pay him, try to, to change. Rashi says he changed his salary terms over a hundred times. That's who I want my kids to grow up with. And I feel that that's where we are in society now. You know, you look around and you feel, this is who I want my children to look to. The people that they see perhaps on TV, are, are these the values? Are the values that I want for my child that, okay, it's a whole different discussion, right? The, the, the diet of media and specifically gaming and movies that our kids grow up on. So what does that teach you? That if you're the good guy, you can pretty much beat or kill anybody who's in your way to achieve the good things. Is that the kind of value system I want my kids to have? So we have a similar dilemma in our lives to what Yaakov had in his life. I want my children to grow up honest, decent, committed, spiritual people. And everybody around them is ducking and diving and doing all kinds of things that are completely questionable. So I could shrug my shoulders and say, it's just so unfortunate, but who am I to fight the tide? You know, that's the definition, halachically, of a duck. In order for a duck to be considered kosher, you know, generally an animal that has any kind of serious disease would not be considered kosher. In the case of a duck, if it cannot swim against the current, that would be an indication that it is not well enough to be considered kosher. That tells us something. If my child is not well enough, strong enough, to be able to swim against the tide, then I'm doing something wrong in the way that I'm educating that child. So to shrug our shoulders and say, if, if only, if only I was living in an environment where people had integrity, then it would be fine and my kids would be fine, is not the Jewish way. Our entire history has been one long story of Yaakov journeys where we land up in environments that are totally different to our belief system, totally different to our value system, and in every single case, we have succeeded in educating our children to still have the right values, and we don't compare ourselves to everybody else, compare ourselves to ourselves. I think it's a really important thing for us to bear in mind, and it's a great responsibility that we have, and we should just bear in mind that we're all capable of doing it, keeping integrity, even when it's not popular for ourselves and for our children. It's been great spending time with you, as always. Have a great Shabbos, and until next time, stay safe and stay sane.